0: This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book
1: publishing. Hi, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Guadagliano. And I'm Ellison Wilgus. We're going to be talking today about trade reviews, which you might remember from our episode, All on Librarians. We've got Publishers Weekly senior news editor, Calvin Reed, who also edits PW Comics World, and The Fanatic, here to talk to us all about the mysteries inside trade publications. Calvin, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you started working with comics, and what you're doing now?
2: Okay. That that could take up the whole podcast. But, uh, <laughs> um, well, as you said, I'm a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly. I started at Publishers Weekly, I 19... Like, 19- Eighty-seven, eighty-six. Ah. Um, I know, I know, I know. Uh, Senpai. <laughs> I started as an associate editor. Uh, before that, actually, uh, you know, I actually I had just arrived in New York in nineteen eighty-one. Uh, I actually came here to be an artist, not to really be in publishing. Uh, I'm a perfect example of the old thing they used to used to describe professionals in this business. Is the uh, called it the accidental profession. Uh, I accidentally became uh, a trade journalist. Uh, I st- actually started out working at a magazine that was part of the, the, the book group at the time because PW has been owned by different entities over time. When I joined it, um, it was owned by Xerox, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Nice. <laughs> um, and then eventually it was sold to Connors, which is a trade magazine conglomerate. And then Connors was bought by Reed Elsevier. And then eventually, the publishers Weekly that we know today was acquired by, uh, our, our Phyllis president, <laughs> um, George Slowick, who bought the company in 2009, moved us to, uh, where we are now on 23rd Street. Uh, so as I, I started as a typist. I was just a typist because it was just a job while I did my art thing. Um, and I worked at Library Journal doing that. And then, um, uh, a job opening came open at Publishers Weekly, which, you know, we were all on the same floor and, you know, just the different magazines had different sections. And my girlfriend at the time just said, yeah, oh, you can do that. You should do it. And uh, I was getting a little tired of just typing. And I had some <laughs> experience as a writer, you know, in college and kind of outside of everything because I also write write about or used to write about contemporary art. So, uh, it's you know, this is a crazy time. This is in the mid-1980s. I think I was making $8,000 a year. And um, I applied for the job that nobody wanted, and I got it. <laughs> and the, uh, and the, the woman that hired me, Madeline Reuter, she's passed away now, uh, she turned me into a trade journalist. She turned me into a reporter. I could write a little. But I had really had not been a real journalist. So I, I had worked for my college newspaper. But uh, Madeline turned me into uh, a big-time New York media reporter.
1: Okay. Before you proceed with how you got from there into being the comics hub of trade journal awesomeness that you are now. <laughs> I'm can, blushing. You, can you give us a bit of a digression into what is a trade journal?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the easy answer to that is it's a business publication. It's news about a business, and every industry generally tends to have its own trade newspaper. I mean, that's where you can look at Publishers Weekly. It is the business newspaper of the book publishing industry. Uh, Oh, I should say book publishing and book selling. Uh, We look at all of the intricate details of everything that supposedly consumers are not interested in. So it's the business infrastructure of book publishing, how books are bought and sold, acquired, edited, uh, dismembered, uh, you you name it, uh, how we get into secondary markets, library markets, anything that has to do with the business of delivering the book to the consumer would be trade journalism. Now, in the internet age, uh, Publishers Weekly in particular, because of what we focus on, uh, and I should say we've always had some consumer audiences, but we have a bigger consumer audience now. So there's more of our content that we actually do hope consumers read. There was a time uh, when I – very early on was at Publishers Weekly when you were told, you know, oh, don't worry about that. It's a, That's a consumer-sided. You don't have to worry about that. But you don't hear that so much now that we are still a trade journal, but there's much more interest in – Delivering to a consumer audience because we know in some of the research that we've done that we do have a fairly sizable consumer
0: audience. You have a lot this. that isn't behind a paywall, though. No. Yeah. Well, you know, paywalls
2: go in and out of vogue. <laughs> um, we have a paywall that uh, I, I don't think this will get me in trouble, but it might, that nobody really wants to use. <laughs> Uh, Now, we use it to some extent because uh, the print side of our magazine is incredibly important. Um, It still uh, generates an enormous amount of advertising revenue.
1: And it comes out every week. Yes. The the print
2: magazine comes out every week. But, you know, Publishers Weekly is actually a little bit misleading. PW is a 24-7, five days a week news journal about the book industry. Now, the print magazine comes out once a week. But we have, you know, Daily Newsletter we have uh, you know a, a twitter account of 800 or 900,000 followers material is coming and going out of pw.com all hours of the day
0: and i want to take a second here because uh, early on in this you sort of really highlighted something here that it's primarily a business publication like because yes. books are books like we think about it like the content there's reviews and mm-hmm. that seem like oh this is like an arts thing so it's like an arts journal but like you're actually in the same category as like tractors weekly yeah. in a lot of yeah. ways a- absolutely. you just happen to be about things that have words yeah. in them instead of like machinery yeah. and and that's
2: that and that is uh, why our relationship to uh, to a consumer market is a little different i think probably the movie trade magazines a variety for instance We have a consumer side because we're writing about books, uh, the business side, but very often the books themselves, um, we can't get away from the content in the books. So we have a bigger uh, uh, consumer audience and more of our content now, you know, we have author interviews, we do author profiles, obviously we have reviews. So we have content that is interesting also to non-professionals.
1: Yeah, that's consumer facing in a way that our interviews about... Tractors? Are there interviews about tractors? <laughs> I really want there to be so badly, <laughs> there, there and I'm be. going to go look it up once we're done recording there's this like podcast. There's like a tractor version of Thomas the Tank Engine, <laughs> who features in that magazine. Um, yeah, so that the things like that, like I have reviewed this this tractor for the professional tractor audience, like is not consumer-facing in the same way that books are because not there's quite. more yeah. books.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we, if we, if Publishers Weekly does an interview, uh, you know, with an author, like, for instance, we did an interview with Mira Jacob. Yeah. For instance, who has a wonderful new memoir out here now. This is something that would be interested. I mean, I would say, uh, to sales and marketing promotional people, uh, it might be interesting to other editors at other houses to see, well, whoa, well, look, look what they're acquiring. But i look, you know, any, any schmo on the street that interested, is interested in really great comics, would want to read that. So consumers, there are areas of our, co- our coverage where it brings the whole business and and our audience, the business's audience, uh, to the same stuff.
0: Now, am I remembering correctly that you were responsible for doing a lot of announcements for acquisitions of new books? Like this, this editor at this print has acquired this book?
2: We do a column called Deals. I, that, that's not my beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have occasionally written some news about Deals, usually about comics and graphic novel acquisitions. But really, um, my colleague, Rachel Deal. And uh, she's is fortuitously named. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Rachel, who's on maternity leave right now, uh, but she'll be back shortly. But yes, yeah, she runs the deal, the deals column, and her beat is rights.
0: Because I think a lot of people who might be listening to this would have encountered Publishers Weekly, if not linked directly. Like, for instance, an author being like, hey, my book is coming out from this house. And we'll have, like, a screenshot from somewhere on your website being like, here's this thing about my book that
1: got posted here kind of thing. Working at Random House Graphic, we do a lot of screenshots of the Publishers Weekly children's bookshelf oh, okay. deal. <laughs> yeah, again, this isn't your uh, beat, but for... e-newsletter. Oh, okay, sure first instance of the deal appearing on the internet, i.e. in my inbox and sharing it with people. I I see. I mean,
2: it's interesting. Because I write about comics, I I dabble in other areas, but I don't really write about children's publishing. But, of course, many of the the, the deals around kids' books are announced in in children's bookshelf. Uh, And um, some of it, I mean, Rachel does some of that, too, but she does mostly adult stuff. So, yeah.
1: Publishers Weekly is not the only trade publication in the book industry no it is the only one that's specifically about publishing i think as opposed to being about kind of librarians or
2: yeah yeah
1: i'm trying to think you know
2: honestly i'm thinking about kirkus but kirkus really just does reviews
1: yeah so can you talk to to us a little about trade publishing book business Are there 100 magazines? Are there two magazines? What what do the rest of them do?
2: You know, that's a good question right now. I haven't thought about this too much. I'm so PW-focused. Because I know there is um, like book
0: list uh, and school library journal.
2: Yeah, I guess book lists would. I mean, I, you know, I am embarrassed to say I don't. I don't necessarily know. I don't really scout our competition much anymore. I mean, and probably for, uh, uh, mostly because I am a little bit lazy. But but um, uh, because when I broke into the business, really, PW almost had no competition at all. Uh, so the the internet era has changed that dramatically. Um, people write about certainly write about books, book reviews, and book content. Um, uh, pre-publication, um, uh, there's so much more of that now, uh, and reviews, of course. There's so many reviews around that you can get online from book bloggers. So, but I mean, I, I know uh, what, uh, places like Book Riot, even, uh, even, um, Publisher's Lunch, uh, I guess that would really be one of our biggest because they cover business, the business side. As well. And, and, and Publishers Lunch is, of course, a
1: newsletter. And e- there's e- newsletter. shelf awareness, too.
2: There is shelf awareness. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I see shelf awareness, I guess, more uh, as a almost a, a specifically uh, a book selling uh, trade. But, you know, it really is a trade. Yeah. yeah, it's a trade. And it's run by my former colleague at Publishers Weekly, John Mutter, yes. who is an awesome dude. <laughs> so shout out to John.
1: Okay, back into your life story. So you came to work at this trade magazine. You're getting paid more than $8,000 a year, doing more things. I got
2: a $1,000 raise when I got hired (laughs) Nice. Oh, no.
1: You're doing more things than typing. Yes. How did you go from there into comics?
2: Uh, I was hired by, as I said, my incredible and wonderful mentor, Madeline Reuter, who really made me into a reporter. Uh, And believe me, nobody at PW wanted me to write about comics. This was not something that was solicited from me at all. But uh, in the 1980s, I came back to comics after really sort of drifting away. I mean, I was reading stuff. I was reading the underground comics. And, you know, I was reading R. Crumb and, you know, drug and sex and rock and roll comics. And then I started to realize that there was a revolution going on with uh, alt, uh, alt publishers like Fantagraphics. And I just started to find uh, other comics that were really different. And uh, I also discovered uh, the Hernandez brothers, Love and Rockets, uh, the the, the incredible two um, uh, Chicano brothers, and their amazing literary comics. And then I started going to St. Mark's comics. And that's where in the mid uh, to late 80s, I started discovering more more comics. And, I, and my immediate reaction was, I'm at Publishers Weekly, and these comics, they're not really like the, the superhero comics I grew up with. This, this, is, this is stuff that should be in the book world. This is something that Publishers Weekly should be covering. We need to be writing about comics in the book trade like we do with every other kind of book. And that's where my journey began.
0: So, was this something you were sort of advocating for at work? Like, were you yeah. nagging people into the game yeah. column, basically? <laughs> yes, that's exactly. Excellent.
2: No, I just started saying, we should re review this. And and I can bring him up. John Mutter, again, in those days at, at, at PW, John was a review editor of, for paperback originals. And he says, oh, if you want to write them. And I was, you know, uh, I think Mouse had. Come out, or the first version of Mouse had come out. We, I think, we published our first graphic novels reviews in '88 or '89, something like that. I think Mouse, the first volume had the first time it came out. Then there was another. Uh, It came out again in the early 90s, I think. And I think that's the one that won the Pulitzer. I may be mangling these.
0: It looks like the first volume came out in 1991. or Maybe it was serialized from 1980 through 1991. Does that sound right? Well, there was
2: some serialization of it in Raw. But um, I thought there was another version that came out from Pantheon. In the eighties, But may, that might be wrong. Maybe I'm misremembering
0: this. There's a, an, I want to point to people who can't see this, I'm scrolling a lot he to get to the we're, publication we're, history oh, section yeah. of the Mouse.
2: <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but basically, uh, uh, I found a sympathetic uh, editor in the reviews department and I said, hey, th- you know, these books are coming out. They're, they're really great quality. I won't review superheroes, which was a kind of, you know, it was a sort of tacit thing that they didn't really want. You know, P.W. in those days really did not have a lot of people that read any kind of comics. John uh, was just being open and, you know, he liked me. And he said, sure, you, you, you find the books and, you know, review them and I'll publish them. So that's, that's, that's what got me started on um, the review side. We published, our P.W. published his first graphic novel reviews in the late 80s. Now, there was a, a feature every year about comics. It publishes weekly also. And the feature was uh, it was a look at usually, um, you know, Peanuts or um, Doonesbury collections that are well-known in bookstores. Book uh, Clibin, I don't know if you remember Clibin, like a thousand and one uses for a dead cat. This guy, he did these gag panels. These books were enormously popular in the mm-hmm. 80s. I mean, he, he sold hundreds of thousands of copies of them, the whole series of them. So, and that's what our feature kind of looked at, those things, you know, newspaper strips that were collected as books, that sort of thing, gag books. And, um, uh, Daisy Merrillis, who was our, uh, PW's executive editor for many, many, many years. And when I came in there, that was one of the features that she did. And so she said, well, you can help me with this. You're, you're in the comics, right? And so, and just as she did with other things that I helped her before, after I'd been there and done it, uh, with her, couple of years, she says, okay, it's yours, your feature now, you do what you want. That's when I started changing the focus of it to add book length narratives, because there was so much stuff coming out of um, the alternative publishing world at that time.
0: This is really interesting. I'm glad that you're talking about this, because I think especially for people who are younger, I think that this sort of move into sort of comics being more part of the book conversation feels more recent and faster than it actually is and it's true that it has changed a lot in yes. the last 5 or 10 years especially for books for young people yes. and more and, and and being more of a popular thing as opposed to just being sort of an art comics thing mm-hmm. yes. but it it's it's great to hear you talking about how you started getting your this foot in the door uh, in the 80s and 90s, and this isn't just the last five years. And it's like suddenly no, no, we care no, about this comics. Is,
2: <laughs> this has been a long process, and I know, and I sit back with some of the people that were you know, were, you know, listening to me because I was just this guy going to the commission, going to some of the smaller shows. Uh, I didn't, although I should say I didn't start going to the San Diego Comic-Con until the late 90s, um, uh, and I didn't go to too many shows, but I was meeting cartoonists around New York, and and we all marvel because it's like we're living now in the world that we envisioned back in those days. I mean, it's it's really kind of amazing because uh, it was very different then. It was very different in the eighties. I had to call up and beg people to send me books. I mean, now of course the comics flow in like you know, every other kind of book flows into <laughs> Publishers Weekly. Um, I mean, um, there was no kid's graphic novel. Well, there weren't any adult graphic I mean, there were books that occasionally were would pop up. Ben Catcher was actually being published at um, Penguin in those days at the early Julius Knipple collections. I mean, books would sh- pop up here and there at different trade houses. Um, nobody quite knew what to do with them. But um, uh, I, I really was, um, without sounding overly wise, i When I realized my position and what impact I could have, my whole thing was to institutionalize comics in the book form uh, at Publishers Weekly and use Publishers Weekly to make it industry-wide.
1: So now Publishers Weekly has a dedicated comics review editor. Yes. There's PW Comics World, which is kind of the the comics coverage on the site. There's also a newsletter, The Fanatic. did you Very new. (laughs) How did you get from, hello, I would like to cover the Hernandez brothers maybe sometime to having all of the stuff which now exists? Like what what changed about your job and what changed about the industry?
2: There's a lot of things that come into play to get us to where we are now. I mean, PW, in my view, was central to it, uh, to to making the book industry uh, respond to this category. Uh, I have always seen myself uh, as this liaison explaining the book trade to the comics world, conventional comics industry, which is, is essentially a magazine mm. business, and explaining the comics world to the book trade people, and then trying to write in a way that translated both sides into something that, you know, the book people would understand in PW. But really, I I got to this point, basically, because of advertising. (laughs) I mean, ultimately, um, uh, the ability to generate advertising made uh, uh, my editors pay attention Uh, and I, for one thing that helped me do this in the early nineties, because there really wasn't regular news coverage of graphic novels. I had gotten reviews in and I did, I had did the feature every year and I had some, we got some other news stories in, but, um, I forget where this was, this is must've been in the, uh, I mean, really early nineties, um, David Wilk, who used to be, uh, running a small regional distributor, and he he decided that it was a big good business to um distribute comics book format comics into the book trade because there wasn't a lot of people doing it and he really kind of uh had a lot of success doing it now he had some financial problems later on mostly because of uh, a debt uh, issue that was that was uh predated the move into comics so as he was distributing people i think he was distributing dark horse i think he might have even been been distributing marvel the uh, Marvel book collections. And, and he was doing it on book trade terms. Uh, uh, you know, one of the big issues in those days, of course, was that Diamond Comics distributor, the main distributor into the comic shop market, you know, they, they are a non-returnable at wholesale, which, of course, is completely in conflict with the book trade, I, I'm not going to go into the. Uh, that, that maybe you've already done <laughs> it on the show. We did a bookstore
1: episode. You did a, Okay, you did a, a difference bit. between and, the book
2: trade and the, cut, the direct market. And yeah. we
1: did a distribution episode. And you also. did it. Okay, uh,
2: but 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 I should say a lot of things came into play. Manga came into play in the in the uh, uh, in the late 90s. Uh, Tokyo Pop. Kurt Hessler, who used to be the buyer at Borders for uh, for manga and graphic novels, he was also. These are all key personalities who brought. Uh, book format comics in i mean manga was important because you know it energized the women young women readers because they're already in the bookstores uh, and all of a sudden, there's all these comics available that are actually designed for girls. Yeah,
0: because before then, most of the people who were bringing in anything interesting was, like, Dark Horse. And they were mostly publishing, yes. like, seinen titles that were for, like, yes. men. Yes, And there was a lot of really good comics. They were doing, like, Blade of the Immortal. Yes, yes. Uh, oh, My Goddess. But, and, the, and those are great comics yes. and everything. But that's, like, a very specific crowd that they were And aiming. they did Ghost in the Shell, too. They, that, yeah. they,
2: I think they did the first time I saw a, a Ghost in the Shell. So yes, but uh, librarians. I mean, I I, I uh, there's so many um things that were happening uh between the mid 1980s up to um the late 90s that you know the internet energized fans in ways that it had never happened before uh librarians um there was a different generation of librarians who had grown up reading comics maybe had been reading underground comics they knew comics could do more things and that they were looking for other kinds of things manga hit in a big way and uh energized bookstores uh publishers saw that they could sell comics at numbers that they respected um Young women were buying manga like nobody's business. Uh, that changed it. And, you know, and then this whole generation of of young artists who were making comics across multiple genres. I mean, and this is the key. And it's what I think that the book trade brings to the world of comics is the need to deliver comics for everybody. So I can just talk endlessly about this, but I'll stop right there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so... You saw that, P.W. saw that, and it translated into more comics coverage.
0: Yes. We also recently uh, interviewed a uh, librarian, Robin Brenner,
1: about um, the
0: ways in which she, as a librarian, uses trade publications like Publishers Weekly to be like, sure. I think that we should buy this book for the library, look at the starred review they got in Publishers Weekly, or look at, frankly, any review because this pr- trade publication is legitimizing this book by giving it a review in the first place. Yes. And that, in turn— it being in libraries and being taken seriously by librarians, you're like, look, we are we need to be covering this because librarians really love these books, so clearly we need to be giving this coverage, and this is this very fortuitous c- circle. It, it. it works
2: both ways. Librarians, and you have to justify uh, what they buy, and they usually need reviews, and they use Publishers Weekly in that way. And then we, the library market is big for, uh, for Publishers Weekly. Um, and so we try to make sure. So all of these things helped me when I'm, going to my editor saying, I want to do this coverage. You know, I mentioned David Wilk, the distributor. He came to me, must have been in 1992 or 3, and he says, if you do a quarterly news section about graphic novel publishing, I guarantee you a page of advertising every time you run it, four times a year. That's music to my ears. I went to my editor and she said, (laughs) sure. (laughs) This was when Nora Rawlinson was editing Publishers Weekly. And And initially, once again, I was doing some coverage. But what advertising does is it gives you credibility. And, you know, we're a small magazine. We're a business magazine. We're not a literary journal. We take literary values into account for sure in our coverage. But, you know, we look at this was good business for us. And it was also important business because we were really opening up a new parallel category of of American literature, you know, that somebody needed to make a big noise about.
1: So can you take us through the trade review process? How do you so, decide what books to cover? How do they get <laughs> to you? How do you give them the fabled starred review?
2: <laughs>
1: How does um, this all work?
2: Uh, okay. Now, the first I have to say, uh, I have to invoke Publishers Weekly's graphic novels review editor, Meg Limpke. Uh, this is really her purview, but we work in as a team. And I also want to invoke Heidi McDonald.
0: Yay, Heidi.
2: Uh, the best, the most awesome comic book reporter on the planet. Now, Heidi, uh, uh, you know, I started all the stuff at, at PW. Heidi made everything better. Up until 2017, when The Beat was acquired uh, by Lion Forge, uh, Heidi was the graphic novels review editor at, at PW and had been... Since so she took it over from me, <laughs> which is why I invited Heidi in. She started as a uh, as a reviewer. Of course, she knows so much about this business, about the you know the comics industry, and and she came into the book side. I learned I've learned so much from Heidi about comics in general. Uh, just her connections are vast. So I have to get that out of the way. But um, but Meg Lemke took over uh, for Heidi, and she's our new um, reviews editor, and that's who you would really talk to about reviews. But so. You have to submit books to be considered for review, and you can do them uh, physically or you can do it digitally. We have a, a site on PublishersWeekly dot com called PW Galley Tracker, and we encourage publishers to upload PDFs of their forthcoming books there. That way, we can you can track whether or not we will review it. And we don't review everything; we do review like a lot of books. I mean, I think we review like ten thousand books a year or something like Jesus. that it's a lot of books um, uh, we probably do four or five hundred graphic novels a year I, that number might be a little off but we do three to five reviews in almost every issue and there's what there's 50 issues of PW every year or something like that that doesn't count there are many review, uh, reviews that are also published direct to online that don't ever appear in print so there is More than just what you see in the print magazine. So that's the first step. You have to submit a book for review and you have to submit uh, it a couple of months in advance. This is a big issue for comics publishers. Uh, part of the big, our problem, you know, working against a tendency in the comics business to just publish a book and throw it out there. That's not how the book industry works. I'm sure you guys have talked about that on this show. Mm -hmm. You don't publish a book and say, okay, (laughs) here it is, buy it. Uh, You work in advance. You want the book uh, to have some momentum when it arrives in the marketplace. Uh, we are a pre publication review. Uh, now, I should say, we all want as much lead time as possible. We encourage people to deliver books three months in advance. Comics, we'll, you know, we'll fudge it a little bit. We'll take two months. But the thing is, you've got to get it in advance. You can't uh, publish a book. It's in a store and then come to PW and say, uh, will you review this? That's not how we operate
1: because the idea is that the reviews are for booksellers and librarians yes. to determine whether they should buy the book. Yes. order the book before it yeah. comes out to have yeah. it in the store or the library basically That's on it. the publication date or before. The
2: whole as as I'm sure you guys have discussed the whole idea in the book trade is that you, you know, you 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 want to create some knowledge about the book before it's on the bookshelf. Um so uh, that's essentially how you do it. I should say oh, that P.W. has a sister publication uh, called Book Life that's specifically aimed at self-publishing uh, side of the business, the uh, indie authors, um, self-published works. Uh, we typically aim you towards Book Life. And those reviews, if it's picked to be reviewed, those books will appear in Publishers Weekly also. So... Uh, there, are, there are different ways for both for self-publishers and for, you know, s- conventional publishers to submit books to work. Uh, okay. Now, the rest of that question is how do we pick what's to be reviewed?
1: Yeah. As much so, as you can talk about it. You get yeah. something submitted and you're like, it's Some a book.
2: It. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, you know, I mean, yourself. it's an art, not a science. I mean, uh, I mean, like I said, uh, technically, I'm not a part of the review okay. Uh But of course, Meg and I, just as Heidi and I, we have a kind of an unusual relationship among departments at PW because I'm the only editor that kind of has this thing that he has started and he's mucking around with wherever comics show up. Uh, and so I just carved out this little space for me. And I work in tandem with Meg. To make sure that we have a well-rounded coverage of graphic novels at PW, so um, Meg puts together like a network of freelance writers who review for her. Uh, I may sometimes use her writers to do, you know, Q and As or interviews or write articles for me because they're knowledgeable about comics. Um we might confer about books if she's not as familiar with something or a category. I mean, sometimes I'm not a giant superhero guy, but I'm maybe a little bit more than Meg. So, you know, I will say, hey, well, you know, we should do this. We need to do this DC book or this Marvel book, um, you know, in addition to our fan graphics and D and Q and, you know, and Kanoff, you know, graphic novels. You know, it it would be hard to to give you like a a methodical, you know, because, you know, we're using our experience, our judgment, uh, and the calendar of publication to decide what we think are uh, the most important books because we can't review every book.
0: So it's like the idea you're basically trying to think like if booksellers and librarians and whatnot are – subscribers what books do we think that they're going to want to care about is that kind of the ultimate absolutely
2: and now once again we don't want to just have you know a a review section full of the most famous uh you know comics creators in the world we know that there are books that come out every day that nobody knows about that are also worthy so we're looking at publishers uh we look at small publishers that we that we respect um you know Things come in through book life sometimes that we say, hey, you know, we talk to the book life people and say, you should review this. So there's a whole, uh, a range of, of Data points that we use to do our very best to bring a wide range of books uh, to the to the reading market.
0: And what does a star review actually mean? Because like for people who are listening to this, that literally, there's literally a star on the review.
2: Well, I should say we do uh, in in uh, the podcast that we do the more to come the our, our weekly podcast on on comics and graphic novel publishing. We have a segment called stargazing. Uh, where Meg and I basically talk about what she's given stars out to, and we talk about the books. I'm actually not an official part of the book review uh, department at Publishers Weekly. And unfortunately, I've been at Publishers Weekly so long, sometimes I have one definition of how we do things, <laughs> because I've been there for 30 years. And uh, younger colleagues... Saying, "Oh, really? Is that what you? That's what you think?" <laughs> the starred reviews used to be termed books of exceptional interest. I don't think that that is still the functional de- definition of it, but you know, I mean, um, th- the common sense thing is that these are books that we think are of extraordinary quality. My own view is that they should not necessarily have to be literary masterpieces. Uh, now. Other people disagree with that. Uh, Now, I think that they should should be simply very good books that you should pay attention to. Um, So that's the broadest and best definition that I can give. But they're really good books.
1: And if you're reviewing five comics every week, are you going to give one starred review every week? Or is there going to be a starred review once a month or once every other month?
2: Um, you know, once again, I can't, that I don't know. I, I do think that they, um, that the review department tracks the numbers of stars that go out. And they. I know that they have periodic discussions about it because, I mean, obviously, and I understand it, they don't want them to become meaningless. So, but, uh, but that's about all I could tell you. I don't know what their internal discussions are about it. Yeah, I mean, you want to highlight books that people should pay attention to and the stars are a good way to do it. Um, But you don't want the stars to become meaningless, so.
1: So can you jump from talking about reviews to talking about what is your job? My job. Yes, like both on a global scale and on a day-to-day scale. Like Like, like, what is your job description and then like what do you do when you go into work?
2: Uh, My job is honestly as – I am both an editor and a reporter of general book news. Now, that's the big heading. Uh, I'm a, a a senior news editor at Publishers Weekly, uh, but I have carved out this role as PW's comics editor, though you will never find that title anywhere on the masthead. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, since the mid-1980s, I have uh, turned uh, comics, uh, graphic novel publishing, into a category of Publishers Weekly. We, we, comics is there. It's in the book review department. It's in our best books. But... Uh, comics is not my only job. Uh, I'm a part of the uh, Publishers Weekly News Department, and I write on any number of issues in the book trade. I reported quite a bit on the digital transition um, during, the, the, during the early years of it. I mean, it's funny. We write, we write about digital publishing all the time, maybe not quite as much as we were going through a period where it was transforming this business and how it's conducted and certainly how books are sold. Um, as well as how they're produced. Uh, so I've done writing about everything from apps to, you know, the Amazon. You know, I, I was the first guy to in- invite Jeff Bezos to publish his weekly uh, when when he was a nice guy. <laughs> uh, and he came. He came. He just, you know, he just popped. He was meeting publisher and he came by the, the office and talked to us. But, you know, as comics has become more and more of a legitimate category, as it's become a bigger and bigger market, as, you know, uh, publishing houses like Random House Star Children's, graphic novel imprints, so I hear, (laughs) um, it's become a bigger part of my responsibilities and duties. And and in fact, you know, going back to my original uh, vision for this – um, you know, I feel as so I have institutionalized it at PW. If I were to go somewhere, they would make sure that there was someone else at PW um, that could organize and write about comics.
0: Also, just backing up one yes. second. Mm-hmm. So you know, you're talking about how you're doing some reporting and news writing. Mm-hmm. What does that look like in the context of – Reporting on the news and publishing is that calling people on the phone? Or is it getting oh, yeah. lunches? Yes, yes. Like- I'm
2: a reporter, so I do all of the I do the stuff that you know reporters do. Uh, I try to have sources in different places. I call people up. I'm I'm uh, just before I came over for for this podcast, I talked with um, a woman who's organizing around delivering books to prisoners in Washington State because there there uh, there's another effort to. Uh, ban uh, outsiders, uh, nonprofits, and family members from sending books to incarcerated people. I mean, it's an absurd and awful idea. We, it was tried in New York, where I wrote a story about that as well. Mm-hmm. So I remember uh, that story. Yeah, so uh, I call up uh, the various people working in it. I called uh, Ellen Adler at um, the New Press in my earlier story because they're they're the publishers of the New Jim Crow. Uh, which had been banned from prisons in New Jersey. So that's one aspect. Yeah, you know, I've written about everything. I covered the, uh, me and my colleague, Andrew Albanese, we covered the Apple trial every day. What was that a 10-day trial? And we alternated. We I would do one day and he would do the next.
0: Like you physically went to the courthouse? and Yes, yeah, so we went house? to
2: the courthouse. My first, one of the first things I did, first assignments I had at Publishers Weekly was I wrote about it was about self-publishing. It was about Vantage Press. Um, if you're young in the business, you might never know what Vantage Press was. Vantage Press was self-publishing before it was cool. And it was basically a fraud. And it cost you ten to $15,000. And uh, they promised you that they would you know, promote your book in bookstores. And no bookstores would take their books. And some guy sued them. So I had to go down to Center Street and sit through the trial and write a story about it. It was one of the first assignments uh, I had at Publishers Weekly. Excellent. But, yeah, I get on the phone and I call people. I go to events. I cover events. We write about the trade shows. I go to – and comic shows now. I go to San Diego. I go to SBX. I was at MoCA, uh, the MoCA Art over this past weekend. I'm, I'm in, When I leave here tonight, I will write up a, a short account – of uh, the show over the weekend, one of my stories going to be it's going to probably the, the show looks like it's going to stay there. Uh, there was some talk that you know that maybe it was becoming too small, but uh, and, you know it, it's it's still it's a pretty good space. Uh, it's 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 worked. I think it's affordable. I mean that's it has an one elevator, the,
0: which is a huge deal. The in New elevator
2: York City. is pretty cool too. Uh, it's got a gallery space, which they, which is very important uh, for the mission. So, uh, I but yes, that was very well done. I I write about, uh, I'm like a, yeah, every, you know, cliche reporter. The only thing I don't have is a fedora with the card press steps the, uh, slipped in the ribbon. But otherwise, I, you know, yeah, even in this digital age. Now, I I can tell you stories of how I used to write in the pre internet age. And now <laughs> it's such a incredible transformation because we used to have a giant library where the librarians would clip articles about books from the newspapers, and when you wanted to write a story about Random House, you went there and you got a big file with all your old clips in it, and you went back to your desk, and the, the librarian would, you know, say, you know, don't forget to bring that back. <laughs> but, of course, now I sit in my desk, and I use PW's database, and I go online to Google, and, uh, you know, I'm calling people, but a lot of the research I do without ever getting up out of my chair.
1: So how do you know that something – is happening to write a story about it. Like, Mocha, you probably know about because It happens every year. Yeah. You kind of <laughs> yeah. know the people involved. Um, like, the Apple thing was, like, a huge national-level
0: thing. Everybody – Oh, like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's
2: – yeah. now. We, we, you know, we have a news team uh, at Publishers Weekly that's divided up. You know, it's uh, uh, Jim are who is the magazine editor director. John Mayer, who's a – uh, I don't know what John's title is now. He's some sort of editor. Uh, me, Andrew Albanese, uh, who writes about libraries, uh, but also writes all about legal stuff. I used to write legal articles. I don't do that so much now. Back when I – years ago, uh, I read legal briefs constantly because I was always writing about lawsuits. I rarely do it now. Andrew is such a much better legal reporter. So he does that. Uh, Rachel Deal is also in the news department. Um Emma Winner, who writes about religion, but she's also in the news department. Uh, so we all we have a, a news meeting. Well, first of all, there's a PW editorial meeting every Monday afternoon, but then there's a news meeting that is Monday or Tuesday, depending on how busy we are. And we all bring in and people uh, say, "Hey, this is something that I want to write," or Jim says, "This is something that I want you to write," um, or I heard this, I heard that, or you know. So we talk. People send stuff. Stuff comes in every day. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of pro forma that, you know, a press release comes in. Not at that exciting, but you know what? We still need to have it written in on the site. Other times, um, you know, like you, you see something in the paper and you say, what's the book angle?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like almost whenever there's a storm, for instance, or some incredible natural disaster, we immediately start talking with our stringers because P.W. has stringers all around the country to see what the impact is on booksellers.
0: Can you tell us what stringers are for people oh, who stringers aren't are,
2: people? <laughs> Stringers are freelance correspondents in various cities, and you know they are paid by the piece that they write. Now, some of our stringers have been, uh, and correspondents have been there many years, so some of them also get a stipend uh, in addition to... Uh, you know, being paid per article.
0: Oh, and, and and sometimes is it literally like everybody on Twitter is yelling about this? Can we figure out oh, why absolutely. they're all yelling about this?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I yes, we, uh, you know, I should never leave out the impact that social media has had on on my job as a reporter. It's enormous. I have both uh, found stories using social media and on Twitter. I've researched stories. I wrote a story about, for instance, Wattpad, which is – I don't know if you know what Wattpad is. Well, tell tell our listeners Wattpad is a very interesting platform uh, that basically is a writer community. Uh, It attracts an incredibly young audience. It's become a platform for really how young – some young writers, particularly in genre fiction, kind of develop their craft. It's a place where you can write and people – because you can't sell anything on it. Uh you write and you can attract followers and you write in various genres and people comment and you put up new chapters and you can get feedback and people will tell you they like it, they don't like it, whatever. I've been pitched stories from by their PR people, but I've also gotten an email from um uh from from authors who just said uh, I have like 13 million reads on Wattpad, you know, would, would you be interested in this? I can't seem to get a publisher. And uh, I've written about them and they've become, you know, people have, publishers have stepped up and signed them up. So uh, you, you get stories in all kinds of ways. You see them yourself and you so you track something down, you bump into a friend, your colleague tells you, hey, you've written about this before, and, and, or you just get an email from someone that says... I think this is a story that you should look into.
0: Have you specifically gotten good at the thing where you see that everybody on Twitter is talking about something, but nobody is linking to that thing or quote-tweeting it, and so you have to spend an hour figuring out – what originated? <laughs>
2: like why memes of sorts, yeah. About,
0: yeah, like why is everybody subtweeting this one cartoonist today? Like, what happened today yes. that started? Well, this? that's
2: in comics, of course. We yes. know that that's a huge uh, trend that happens <laughs> time and time again. There's it's always very some, hard some...
0: sometimes to figure out what started it.
2: You know, it is, and it, it is particularly for me because I, I mean I am a kind of a Twitter nut. Social media, I'm really fascinated by it. Uh, I'm not necessarily as adept at finding where fans are talking about or what they're talking about, um, but I have help. Yeah. My co-host, for instance, uh, Kate Fitzsimmons, who, you know, our podcast is, is structured where we're all about a generation apart. I'm the oldest. I'm 67 years old. Heidi's a lot younger than me, and Kate is a lot younger than both of us. So we've got this three tiers of fandom. And so... Kate tends to translate
0: it's like, hello, the, young yes. person. Tell us what's going yeah, well, on. Well, kind of. Just I, like, I do that, and I'm 38. <laughs> yeah,
2: so, so, that definitely. But you, but you're you're absolutely right. And there there is a there is um, a layered uh, digital discussion going on at varying levels of comprehensibility um, <laughs> that can lead you to a bigger story. But really, a lot of the stuff uh, it's confusing at first, but you can kind of follow it back to the source, particularly about a abusive behavior mm-hmm. you know sexual har- har- harassment I mean which has obviously been a big issue in the comics industry and it has propped up in on Twitter very often so yes Twitter is a way uh, to lead you to stories to lead you to sources to all kinds of stuff yeah
1: so you are writing articles how do they get from being articles to either being in the the weekly magazine or being in the newsletter are you like coding the newsletter? are you like dropping stuff into the design layout? Do you have a production team?
2: Um, well there's 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 two two things if you don't count the social media uh, outlets as stories which they kind of are in a sort of way they I mean they call themselves a little mini blogs anyway because PW has both a Twitter account uh, and Instagram account, uh, Facebook page. But um, there's online PW and there's print PW. It's two sides to the same magazine. (laughs) And I mean, everything that goes into print goes online, obviously enough. Um, Sometimes things that go uh, online first and then go in print. Uh, But there's no hard and fast rule. It all depends. Very often you pitch stories for, say, oh, this is for the daily. Uh, which means they're going to go directly into PW Daily, which goes out to like forty-five or 50,000 people every day. Now, PW has about seven or eight newsletters and about seven or eight podcasts, too. So all of this is the platform. Then some stories you pitch just to go in print. Um, It kind of depends on what the print magazine needs. Um, And then some stories just go online, and, and they don't necessarily go in the Daily or in print and they just go direct to online and you just you you social media up to death. And that's how they get around. Um some stories I mean almost everything that will go into the fanatic will be somewhere else too because the fanatic is almost it's really sort of a curatorial view of PW content with some and that's occasional.
1: The newsletter. That's yeah, that's the, the fanatic newsletter. yes, which is
2: comics and pop culture. Uh, and I see it really as a guide to PWS and we publish an enormous amount of content. Uh, so there's some original reporting in it um, generally the lead story but some other stories but a little, but the bulk of the content in it is is me highlighting something that I think is cool in PWS most recent coverage.
0: Are you like coding the, the HTML for uh, the page? Uh, Do you have a person who does that for you? Yeah, I mean we don't necessarily
2: I mean um, we have a CMS you know, the tool, basically a way that you load stories uh, that go online on the website. And then we also have a separate deal. What is it? K4, I think it's called. A CMS for print. And um, Is that a
0: content management system? Yes, it's okay. a content ma- Yes, it is. I actually yeah, wasn't sure. <laughs> yes, it is.
2: That's exactly what it is. And there's really two separate ones for, there's the CMS for the website, and then there's a CMS uh, that's K4, which I I, did, I mean I think there's another name for it. But basically K4 is another way the content uh is is turned into the print magazine. And then it's imported out of that and goes into the CMS through some process that I don't understand. And I don't think it's completely automated. I think it's partially automated, but there's a dude who has to like make sure that the headlines make sense for online, going from print to online and blah, blah, blah. Um, but no, we, we, you, you learn how to go into the CMS. There's some small amount of coding, that, you know, some HTML for bold and, you know. Actually, for, it's funny, for the Fanatic, they, they say, oh, yeah, you can use, you can use some coding for formatting. For most stories that go directly online, they don't want you to use the, any kind of coding for it. They used to, but now they said, don't do it. But now they let me do it a little bit on the Fanatic. You know, you learn how to load things into the tool. And what K4 allows us to do, and this was a big upgrade from older versions for the print magazine, is that you, you, you can put your stories in it, and then you can format them, and you can edit them right up live, right be, until they, they go off to be printed. Oh, and' because nice. you used to be you used to have to send everything through the art department, and somebody had to do it for you, but now well
0: because they're physically pasting it up yes,
2: yeah, and and and, in the, and it used to be in the old days, man, I remember when it first came in it was like it was so funny, we would do things uh digitally and send it to them, and they would print them out like a compositor mm-hmm. and wax them. And you did a mechanical of the page, mm-hmm. even though you had, and then you no, you know what you do actually you would, they would print those out and then you would make a mechanical and take it to the digital layout. And then they would create a digital layout from, it was so weird hybrid of the old way of doing it and the new way of doing it. Mm-hmm. So now of course it's all digital. We plug it in, but the the biggest upgrade is, is that writers can go into the files even as the layout has been done online, on I think it's in InDesign, and you can cut and make changes and, and you don't have to go through somebody. Because if you
0: have a correction you need to make or something. you can just
2: I can, I can do it as the writer of the article. And in the past, you wouldn't be able to do that. You had to go to somebody else and they would make it for you. So now, I, you know, that's where it is now. So, yeah, so it's two things, one for the online side, one for the print side.
1: But you have like a design team and a copy yes. editing team yes. and all of that, so that yes. you're not spelling everything correctly all the time.
2: Yes. Yeah. Now I will say the the print magazine gets the best copy editing go over. The newsletters have varying levels of copy editing. I hope I'm, <laughs> that problem. I'm not revealing some thing, but <laughs> you know, I difficult. think I think it's you know, I mean, everybody gets somebody to read, but the if the copy editors had to copy edit everything that went out in the newsletters, I don't think that anything would ever
0: get done. No, that's a really fast turnaround. Yeah. Because the whole point of the newsletter is to be like is immediately to be a, a, relevant. Yeah. Right.
2: And not to be constantly rewriting, which copy editors love for you to do. <laughs> so now everything is read by someone, usually among the news team. You, no story goes out where you only read it yourself. And actually, I do get one of the copy editors, when they have time, To go over my um, fanatic just before it goes out. Um, And he's just looking for typos and stuff like that. The proofread, I should say.
1: So let's talk a little about authors. Sure. Um, If an author really wants to be in PW in some way. Obviously, they should get their publisher to send their book to you three plus months in advance. But are there other ways that you are talking about kind of new and exciting authors or authors who have their masterpiece coming out or authors who are at conventions? Like, how are authors getting on the radar of the coverage that you do?
2: You know, shoe leather, I try to be out there. Now, I don't go to as many conventions as, say, Heidi does. Or, or I may not go to as many as you go to, uh, Gina. Um, I mean, I have my So set like ones. less
1: than 15 a year?
2: <laughs> For me, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, but that's,
1: I mean, that's still a lot that you do. Like yeah. 15 uh, yeah. a year is, is well, I don't I
2: don't do not I don't do 15 a year. Many. I go to, I tell you where I go. I go to San Diego. I go to New York Comic Con. Yeah. I go to TCAF. I go to SBX. I go to Mocha And, you know, you know I've mentioned three already. I think they're just in New York. I go to Cab. Um, now, I have Stringer's. Um, and we do reports from others. I know I, I went to the first C2E2, but I, I haven't gone since. But we just, you know, Bridget Alpherson did a report on me from C. So we try to cover all of those, but I do try to get out myself and see and find books. Now, it was years ago I used to go out and I would encourage people to send their books in the PW. Now I don't have to do that so much, um, but I still do. Uh, if people are have a lot of self-publishing a periodical series and I think it's really good I try to encourage them to think about a book. You know, if you self-publish, you know, think about submitting it to Book Life. Yeah.
1: Sometimes the magazine has or the e-newsletter has like author interviews yes. or author features. Sure. How do those come about? How do you decide that an author and a book?
2: Well, or- well this is what we do. We do it like we do every other, I mean, part of my thing is that, if, even when I was starting out, was is that, uh, you know, we're not doing this to be cultural, you know, we're not doing this because you like me, we're doing this because this is an important business, this is part of American literature and American publishing, and this is a business opportunity for Publishers Weekly. Uh, so we do it, and the whole idea is to cover comics the way we cover every other category. So... You know, uh, we do one of the features we do, uh, that I left out announcement issues. That was one of my early things is to get comics in, have an announcement issue. Just as though you look to see what's the best fiction coming up in the fall and in the, and in the spring. So what we do, uh, we do that. I use the list, the announcement issues, and I sit down with, um, with Meg Limke and we try to figure out, okay, Seth, has this incredible graphic novel coming up. He's been working on it for 20 years. We need to do an author profile of him. And an author profile is a very specific kind of PW feature, which is like a 1,400-word article about um, uh, the author's basically creative and publishing history tied to a new book. And it's kind of the the most literary writing that you'll see in Publishers Weekly. So – We'll sit down and, you know, uh, and plan out as far ahead as we can who we want to do this, what part of the magazine. And I coordinate this with other uh, editors in the book. For instance, the editors in charge of the author profile, which is, is in the book review department. So I talk with uh, Gabe Abash, who's the deputy editor, and say, hey, I will. you know, we want to do these profiles of these graphic novel artists that's coming out in July and August, blah, 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 blah. So what I do— Uh, to take the weight off of Gabe, I'm, you know, I assigned a writer. I will give it the first edit and send it to him. We've got some good writers who do our our profiles, so it's not a whole lot of work to do. And we just try to make sure that we have graphic fiction and nonfiction in the mix as we would for any other kind of book.
1: So you talked about Seth and you were like, he's been working on this book for 20 years. Is that what you're looking for in your author-focused content?
2: It's one of the things we're looking for, yes, absolutely. We want to make sure that these kinds of books uh, that are uh, significant, you know, publishing efforts that are going to be promoted, that booksellers need to know about, that librarians need to know about. Now, Seth is obviously working on, uh, you know, a very literary and a very, you know, a very art-oriented book. We cover this because these are, you know, literary works are business objects as well. They are commodities just like everything else. So we want to make sure that we cover the literary side. We want to make sure we cover genre fiction. We, you know, we want to make sure we cover serious nonfiction. We want to be professional. We want to do what every other category of Publishers Weekly does we cover the entire market. That's what PW does. That's why PW has succeeded ever since, when is it, 1870-something when the, the thing started? And this has been my vision all along. I want comics covered the way we cover everything else in the book trade.
1: So you are looking to organize this coverage so that booksellers, librarians, teachers are aware of the book for before when it's coming out. But what are things for a book or for an author that would make you excited about it after it comes out, that might make you do something in PW. Um. Well,
2: well, uh, booking can become a story b- basically if it's in a lot of copies. Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, if I bring up the book that I, I wrote quite a bit about in 2017, uh, my favorite thing is Monsters, which came out of nowhere. I mean, that's an interesting book thing about. Now it came out of a publisher that. Uh, uh, I have a lot of respect for in terms of creating books of great significance, and that's phantographics. Uh, but the author was completely unknown, and it was almost a fluke uh, that I put her on a panel. Because uh, 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 if you don't know, Gina and I team up to do a graphic novel panel at Book Expo every year, the industry trade show. And it was in Chicago one year, and uh, uh, she ended up on that panel for really for no other reason than that she lived in Chicago. But I didn't want a panel with two people on it and uh it was really sort of difficult that year to get yeah. artists, so that book has an amazing story to it. It's just an extraordinary book in every way, just as an artistic creation, but it also became a news story because first of all it was on a it, the shipment of the book it was supposed to be published, and the shipment was on the shipping company went bankrupt oh and, it was
0: one of those and the
2: init- oh. and the book was like trapped in The Uh, Panama Canal. Yeah,
0: God, that was a bunch of people's books. (laughs) And
2: um, when demand for the book was really starting to build, because as people read this book, they started to realize, and uh, uh, by Emil Ferris is the the author, that pretty much nobody knew about, uh, and then I I started reading it, and I realized, this is just an incredibly, beautifully done, powerful book that everybody needs to know about, and... uh, so I ended up writing stories first about her just discovering this book that and its its charm and power, and then of course this incredible thing about it becoming a a bestseller, uh, out of nowhere. So, I mean, you don't get that every day. But the but a lot of the things that happened to that book would be news. Yeah, and in fact, it became a news story. I said, hey, you know, this book among about. 10 or 15 other publishers, they're trapped on a tank, on a container ship in the Panama Canal. So I did a story about that. But then I later did a story about how it was the biggest back-to-print uh, reprint for Fanographics ether. they went back to print. I think for like forty thousand copies. Oh, Jesus, that's when, a lot yeah. for
0: comics. For the record, for people listening, is that is any lot a, <laughs> yeah, a lot for. I it. think that I think that just very briefly. I think that the conversation about books is so often only about enormous bestsellers. Yes. That you forget that like ten thousand books is a lot of books. Uh, like, yes, for most books, that's a lot of books. Uh, absolutely, and an so American a book market for a, it th- for a literary graphic novel. Uh, that's absolutely, absolutely.
2: Kind. Absolutely. And, uh, I mean, some people complain about the industry today that the publishers don't care about a book that, that won't sell 30,000 copies. Um, but that's but most I'm, books. <laughs> but I know. What you mean? This is America. People don't buy books. I mean, they just don't. I mean, there's more books being published now than ever before. I mean, there. it's interesting uh, that we, in a digital age, which was supposed to be about the end of reading, I think we were seeing just the opposite here. But still, Americans don't buy a whole hell of a lot of books. Um, that said, um, yeah, 10,000 copies to me seems like, uh, you know, you can sell 10,000 copies. You're doing pretty good.
1: (laughs) So that book also won a number of awards. Yeah. I was, I was there when she won the Ignatz and we all cried.
2: It seemed to have won every award. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it should have won a national book award too.
1: And that's something that you might write about also.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes, we do cover we cover awards absolutely. I mean, what what we're seeing now, of course, are comics being part of these big industry awards uh, including the uh, ALA awards. Uh but, you know, we'll do some coverage. I'll do a little coverage, you know, focused on just the comics part of it. You know, like the the LA Times Book Awards, they they've had some very savvy um Graphic novel winners uh, out there that uh, you didn't see on in other awards series, and I and I and I really thought the books were really good. So yes, we cover awards without a doubt.
1: Are there other things that you wish that authors knew about trade media?
2: Things have changed so dramatically. Uh, I'm like incredibly grateful every day. <laughs> you know, when I started doing this, I mean, I really had to beg people to send books to PW. I used to do the feature every year. And famously, this one publisher used to say, "Oh, here's Calvin again about comics in the book trade. Comics in the book trade is the great white hope of comics publishing, <laughs> uh, because at this time, this was like in the early '90s. Oh a lot of publishers, are like, well, it's nice that Calvin does this, but you know, the book trade is never going to pay it really attention to comics. Oh my you god." Know. <laughs> But this is this is kind of part of comics is the the fatalistic mentality of comics (laughs) fans who, because of the weird role of comics in this country, where it kind of is this incredible um, uh, category. It's like jazz is sort of um, marginalized but still influential. But that's changed now as we we see American North American comics has developed into a multi genre. You know, form like it is everywhere else in the world. So it, it's hard for me to see what's missing right now because there's so much more than there ever was. I'm flooded with books. There's more. There's more comic stuff that flows into our office than we can ever write about. A lot of it is is really good. Um, uh, you know, some of it isn't, but that's published. I will say this: I will do wish publishers would let me know a little better. There's so many books now that are very good that I d- never knew. Are coming to market, I, and there was a time when literally I, I thought I knew every book format comics that was being published. But well, that's gone. Forever it's exploded
0: now. enormously. You used to yeah. be able to read basically everything worth reading in yeah, a given it, year yeah. if you b- bothered, and yeah. now it's impossible. Yeah,
2: no, it's it's completely impossible. But there are, but I do find incredible books that are published that I've never, nobody even sent me a release. Or, you know, I was like, really? I mean, this is, this is what all I do here. I'm just, I, I sit here every day trying to, to hype a really good book. And, you know, the people have good books that I never knew were coming out.
1: Okay, so if publishers have, you know, slam dunk, knock it out of the park, graphic novels, they should drop you a line at least three yeah, months sure. prior.
2: Yes, that's the thing. Now, you know, I, I can't promise I'm going to review all of them, but let me know. And people do, believe me, now, particularly with social media and Kickstarter, because everybody's got a Kickstarter um, campaign that they want, you know, they want us to publicize. So I can't publicize everybody's Kickstarter because that's all that I would be doing <laughs> every day. But you know, send me stuff if I can. You know, I'll give it a shout out.
0: It also is worth noting, uh, in terms of like the worthiness of sending books to Publishers Weekly and having you guys cover it. Like I was sassy 2e2 and I had at least four or five librarians come up to my table and apologize to me that they weren't buying my book because they'd bought it for their library and Multiple people were like, oh, I heard about it in Publishers Weekly. Like, that was how they had well, first encountered it because y'all had like very kindly. <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, I, and, and I'm saying this specifically because, like, for instance, my book was from Tor, which uh-huh. is an unusual publisher for comics. Um, and so it, I don't know if the, that would have been on their radar at all, even if they really care about comics, if not for sure. that. Coverage. Well, that's a good so, point.
2: Although I'm, um, I'm really interested in the editor over there, a Diane Foe.
0: Yeah, Diana Foe. Yeah, she's yeah great.
2: Diana Foe, who I need to do more um, um, because um, she. I know she did something for us at the Brooklyn Book Festival. She did yeah. it was a moderating panel, but I know she's got more stuff coming.
0: She's great, and yeah. I think that Diana is. Doing a lot of really interesting stuff in a tour, and I'm really hope that she can help solve a big problem in comics right now. Not to be like now, Allison's going to talk here, but <laughs> I, I, I've been talking a lot recently that I think that we've made so much progress as an industry, but we still haven't solved the problem of like genre comics for adults. Like memoir yeah. is great, uh, nonfiction is great. If you want to do a science fiction and fantasy comic for adults, it's still really, really hard to find them. They're either self published their dark horse or their yeah. image and there's very few people doing them other than that and Diana trying to do them a tour yeah. I really I'm, I'm always like I hope my book does well for me but also for comics there you go <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of comics please let my book do well, well. It, it's true the, ultra, the adult side
2: is growing across the board but there, there is um, I mean if you look at the library world too I mean yeah, they, they, you see the same thing the adult side is is really kind of where the kids side was 10 years ago mm-hmm. Uh, or, or 15 years ago. So, yeah, um, but you know, we've, we come a long way. I mean, I'd like us to come a little bit more. Even at PW, you know, we do the best books, um, uh, our best books of the year. So what happens sometimes is that, okay, I only get five graphic novels in our best book list, but God, that's brutal. But we also have the PW graphic novel critics poll where we do this at the end of the year every year that is basically where we do our own look of what the best graphic novels of the year. So that way we throw a little bit more attention on, uh, particularly on adult books. We're focusing more on adult because the kids' department does a pretty good good job of covering uh, kids' graphic novels.
1: So if people would like your job or a job similar (laughs) to your job, should they – Look for positions as typists with
2: with the trade publications. Uh, Yeah, that's a good. It's interesting. How do you get a job as a reporter these days? Well, you know, reporting is not like when I had the job, you know, they they had a problem getting someone to take the job as assistant to Madeline. And um, these days, there just aren't that many jobs. How would you get a job in trade? Uh, It would be pretty tough. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so probably like writing reviews might be a place for
2: that's people a good way to start it, yeah. and make that's a very that's a very good suggestion. Um freelance writing, you know, uh is the best way. I mean, I use a number of freelancers to write my comic stories. Uh for me, I'd write some obviously, but uh I don't write features anymore. I don't do profiles. I used to do them cuz you know, they take up so much time and you you know, if I if I'm working on one story, I can't do something else. And I can edit multiple things. So yeah, um, Meg is uh, Meg Limkey. She's always looking for freelance reviewers. Uh, I I look for writers if they can do a basic news story. Uh, that's tricky. I also hire writers to do Q and As, which are a lot easier, easier to read, easier to edit, easier to write. So yeah, uh, freelance writing is probably the best way. I'm not going to say though that that's going to get you a job at Publishers <laughs> Weekly, but it might get you on the radar anyway. It'll get you on people's radar. That's true.
1: Okay. As we wrap things up here, is there anything about PW Comics trade publications that you want to talk about that we missed in our conversation?
2: You know, uh, we do a lot with, you know, a small cast of characters. So, um, but no, just send books in. If you're a publisher, buy an ad. <laughs> it helps me do my job. <laughs> you look, but uh, my, my editors love that I write about comics but we're a business, and uh, advertising uh, is, is really keeps. – we're a small magazine. Publishers Weekly is not a global conglomerate. Uh, we used to be part of one, but we are no longer. Publishers Weekly is a business that has about 50 people that work for them and, uh, and then a bunch of stringers around the country. So we are a small business, and we're here to, uh, to help you find great books. That's, that's what we're doing. And, um, and as a subset of that, they help you find really great graphic novels. And graphic nonfiction.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find Publishers Weekly and also you on the internet?
2: Uh, PublishersWeekly.com. And then you can find uh, all of our comic stuff at PublishersWeekly.com slash comics. Um, and we're uh, uh, we have a podcast, More to Come. Uh, with me, Heidi, and Kate Fitzsimmons, and it's every week. And, uh, actually this week we'll have, uh, interviews from the floor of Mo- the Mocha Arts Fest. And you can find us at publishersweekly.com slash comics, but we're also on iTunes. You can, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And uh, apparently, I'm going to be on this publishing uh, podcast, so it's um yes.
1: Do you have a Twitter account as well?
2: I do. Uh, uh, I have my own personal Twitter account, but we have a there is a uh, PW Comics World at PW Comics World is our Twitter, uh, a, and we have uh, a PW Comics World Facebook page.
1: People can follow you on your Twitter for comics yes, and, and baseball.
2: Yes, you can indeed. Uh, you can find you can if, if you're in New York Yankees, <laughs> you can find out that much about baseball. Uh, but yeah, but I yes, I retweet all kinds of stuff about baseball in my uh, personal Twitter feed. But that's uh, at Cal Reed, I think it is. Yeah,
0: Calvin, thank you for coming and talking to us about news and also comics. I was sure. not expecting this to go to us complaining about how weird paste-ups used to be, but like, I'm very happy. <laughs>
2: well, um, I've been doing this for a long time. So, yeah, it's I like love it. the, the dim, misty past comes up from time to time. Thank you for inviting me uh, to be on this show. It's really fun to talk about all this stuff.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Graphic Novel TK. Up next, we're going to talk more about media, and we're going to explore the media landscape outside the trade market and into the consumer market. Um, It's a whole different world out there. So more to come. Which is your so tagline? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks yeah, we're for like letting <laughs> us steal it, cousin podcast. Anytime. Po-
0: Calvin Reed episode. We, we can get away with it because people forget the TK stands for to come. So we're not yeah. just ganking on you.
2: Well, and I give I give once again credit to Heidi. She came up with this, the name of the uh, podcast. Although she said because you say it all the time. <laughs>
0: Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Alison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at Graphic Novel TK or email us at graphicnoveltk at gmail.com. Literally, when Gina and I were planning this podcast, we sat in her living room with a sheet of paper and came up with like sixty bad <laughs> podcast titles, which still yeah. exists somewhere. Indeed, this I don't think we stacked, used though. any of those. I think that we, I think that we came up with Graphic Novel TK on a yeah. different day. We're like, these are all terrible. <laughs> yeah, because um, most of them were like a sentence long, which yeah. is yeah, that's terrible. <laughs>